So we're still in 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 3, and we will be beginning in verse 8. What we did last time was authority relationships. Peter is, of course, writing to Hebrews in the diaspora, and he's telling them that they should behave because they're a minority in the Gentile nation, and they should make sure that even when anti-Semitism raises its ugly head, that they themselves have got no cause for guilt. He then goes into authority relations between men and women within the family. And so that's sort of where we left off last time. So let's pick it up in 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that is a quote from Psalm 34. We've all been through, at least I think everybody has, discussions on Lashon Hurrah. Lashon Hurrah is, of course, the evil tongue. And very often it's described in Scripture as gossiping and murmuring. And, of course, what Peter is talking about here is probably directed more toward the community than it is to the surrounding Gentiles. Could be both. That is certainly not definitive. But the idea of Lashon Hurrah is that everything is words. God created everything with words. He sustains it with words. With the words that we speak, we become in a sense, partners in the creation, or we become agents of destruction. What we see right now, for example, in the United States, is words being used as agents of destruction. So all of this stuff that you see on the nightly news, where you have platoons of screaming people running around in the cities and burning stuff, the burning stuff is important. But the more important thing is the words. And what they are is they're accusing. Everything that they say is accusatory of somebody. Well, if you think about that for just a moment, who is the accuser of the brethren? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So when you've got this mob of screaming people who are, I'm going to suggest, not really thinking, just emoting, and they're screaming obscenities and accusations against her, I'm going to suggest that they are not of God. They claim the mantle of moral high ground. So all the screaming that they're doing is, from their perspective, from a morally elevated perch, yelling at sinners. And what I'm suggesting to you is that's not the case. That this constant stream of accusation is in fact satanic. It is not righteous. 
And what Peter is saying here is within the community, you need to watch what you say. You don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So the idea that these folks are out here reviling everybody that doesn't think like them right now, and if you think like them right now but you don't tomorrow, they will turn on you on a dime. This is not a community-building organization. This is an organization that is destructive. And as I started off, everything is words. God created it all with words. And when we use our voices to edify, to build up, to encourage all of the things that Peter is talking about here, what we are becoming, if you will, is partners in God's creation. And when we use our voices to tear down and to cause violence and so forth, I'm going to suggest that we are partners not in God's creation, but in Satan's destruction. The comment was that you have the expression, swears like a sailor. And as you watch news footage of these riots, what you see are women screaming and shouting obscenity and their faces contorted with rage. Having been in the army and having been around lots of sailors, swearing like a sailor is not angry. It's just sort of part of the vocabulary, if that makes sense to you. It's sort of, give me that effing whatever. You're not angry, it's just sort of a punctuation. Wonderful story. Many of you know I went to West Point, and while I was there, General Westmoreland was the superintendent. And he would have cadets over for supper. And one of the classmates was sitting at dinner, being very prim and proper, and he said, pass the effing potatoes. Realized what he had said, went white as a sheet, got up from the table and walked out the door because he knew his career was over at that point. And Westmoreland's wife, I think her name was Stevie, got up and ran out and grabbed him in the coat hall and says, stop, 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 be calm. I've heard all those words. Westy uses them himself. Come on back in. And the cadet says, no shit. <laughs> and Stevie looks at him and says, no shit. Come on in. <laughs> so, so that's what swearing like a sailor is. And the difference is they're not swearing like sailors. This is not just sort of casual profanity as groups of men will engage in. This is anger and rage and thinking up the most vile things that they can say to hurt and to tear. I'm sure that whenever whoever listens to this on tape is <laughs> this is a Bible study. Um, actually, yes, it is. So anyway, what he's talking about here, and those of you who have been here for a while know that the laws of proper speech are a big deal in Judaism. They write books about it. They study it. It's a big deal. They care about it a great deal. And so what Peter is saying here to this 
community is he is reminding them essentially of the laws of proper speech and I will suggest to you that this is something that they know. Now, coming down to the end of it, we'll start with verse 9, then we'll go to the end of the quotation. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. So the idea, Yeshua says, with the measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. So if you go around and you use your voice to curse people and revile people, that's what's going to be measured back to you. And if you use your voice to bless, that will be measured back to you. And then down to verse 12, where he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, one of the things we talked about last time in the context of husband and wife relationships earlier in the letter, remember it says, wives respect your husbands, and it says, husbands love your wife and treat them well, because if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. So we talked about authority relations last time where you have God is, Yeshua is the top, and then the husband, then the wife, then the children. And in the secular, especially in that part of the world, the husband was sort of the top of the heap, not in God's economy. In God's economy, the husband is number two in the heap behind God. And what Peter is saying here is the way you treat people and the way that you speak will determine whether or not God listens to your prayers. 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This theme, and we talked about this last time, there's several possible connotations. Connotation number one, of course, is that Christian believers in a Hebrew community who are ethnically Hebrew may catch a bunch of grief from their non-Messianic Hebrew brethren. So the Pharisees that did not come to know Yeshua were zealous in persecuting the way. In fact, that's how Paul sort of got his start in life as he was persecuting those who are of the way. So that's one possibility. Possibility number two, of course, is they live in a pagan community, and one of the things that's going to happen is there are going to be pagans who are going to be converted to Christianity. Remember, that's Paul's job, as he goes through much of the same area. 
and he is planting churches so you have pagans who are converting to Christianity and one of the things that is said for example I believe in Colossians is your former pagan friends are going to be hard on you because you're no longer doing the same stuff that they do. So as Christianity spreads through that region, Hebrew Christians will be subject to harassment by fellow Hebrews who are not messianic, as well as harassment by pagans who see the spread of Christianity and are just hostile to Christians in general. So the point that he's making here is that persecution goes with the territory. And it is important when you are persecuted not to be persecuted for any kind of secular crime or for bad behavior as both the world and God define it. If you're going to be persecuted, make sure that the only reason they have to persecute you is for your testimony. That's the message here. So as he's talking about not returning reviling for reviling, be gentle in explaining what you believe, all of those things, there have been sects of Christianity as there are sects of Islam who believe in conversion by the sword. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't be engaged in that kind of stuff. In fact, I may have told some of you this. Years and years and years and years and years ago, my mother used to take New Yorker magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the cartoons in New Yorker magazines were just a delight. And there was one that I remember, a crusader. And he's sitting up on his horse, and he's got his lance on the neck of a Muslim laying down on the ground. Okay, this is the Crusades. And the Muslim was looking up at him and says, tell me more about this Christ. I'm terribly interested. So, as I say, there are sects of Christianity and Islam, of course, who have done that kind of stuff. And Peter is talking against that, among other things. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought to safety through water. This is one of the places where the spirits in prison are referred to. Your reference there is Genesis 6 with the Nephilim. The other place, of course, you want to go is the book of Jude, played up in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua Messiah. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Yeshua, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So what Jude is saying and what Peter is referring to is angels who did not keep their proper place and according to Genesis 6 came down and crossbred with women and you had then unnatural offspring which God had to then destroy with a flood. And he took those angels who used their reproductive organs for unauthorized purposes. Well, I mean, that's what this is all about, the unauthorized use of the reproductive organs, both in Sodom and Gomorrah and in these angels. And by extension, those who are creeping into the fellowship and turning the grace of God into sensuality. So the whole thing is talking about sexual immorality, as is Peter. And one of the reasons that people are creeping into the congregation unnoticed and perverting the grace of God into sensuality is exactly the same thing as the Moabite women did to the Israelites. So the idea of bringing unauthorized sex into the congregation goes clear back to Genesis. We see it again in the Moabite women. And one of the things that virtually all pagan religions that I know of have is lots of sex. Sex is one of the chief hooks that pagan religions used to keep people in the religion. And interestingly, on a side note today, you all know the story of Jeffrey Epstein and Jelaine Maxwell and all of that kind of stuff. What he was doing was running a sex ring with the idea of getting prominent people on film in compromising situations. And the list of people that he has dirt on is very large. I mean, they were able to reach into a federal prison and have him killed within 24 hours. Don't know whether Miss Maxwell is going to meet the same fate. But the whole point here is sex is so powerful. God gave it to us, and it's to be used in ways that he says it's to be used. In other words, in that case, it's a great blessing when it's used properly. It's also the most destructive force known to man when it gets out of control and it becomes a potent tool of Satan. So what Peter is talking to back here in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So as I am fond of saying, and I didn't, it's not original with me, when he went down to hell, he redecorated the place. And everything is now in subjection to him. But what Peter is saying is having switched sides, you now have an obligation to behave in accordance with the rules of Yeshua as opposed to what you used to operate in, which is in your own conscience. One of the things we see in Revelation is Satan and his angels have been cast out of heaven. And they are bound under the earth until Yeshua comes back and they are released for a time at the end of a thousand year reign. We know that. What we don't know is when that casting out and imprisonment occurs or occurred. We don't know if it's past, we don't know if it's future. Just don't know the answer to that. So that could have been something that was done early on, or it could be something that was done at the time of Yeshua's resurrection, or it could be something that is yet future. The way it's set up in Revelation, it isn't clear what the timing is. You've all heard this before, but I'll review for you, remind you. Revelation is three sets of seven. So you've got seven seals, and that's where his authority is authenticated. You've got seven trumpets, which is the announcement of the coming of the king. And at the seventh trumpet, you have a replay of Joshua entering the land at Jericho, where you have seven days walking around the city, blowing trumpets, and on the seventh trumpet, the walls fall down and the Israelites enter Jericho. So the sequence of seven trumpets and the invasion starting on the seventh is exactly analogous to what Joshua did entering the land. And then you have seven bowls of wrath where the king is pouring out vengeance on his enemies. So that's the structure. But the thing is, interspersed, between those three sets of seven are what I would describe as meanwhile back at the ranch. In other words, background stuff where you have the woman and the dragon and all that kind of stuff isn't part of one of those sequences. It's my personal belief, and again, you don't have to buy this, it's just what I think, that the three sequences of seven are literally sequential and linear and they will happen in that order, and they are time-bound. The interludes are not time-bound. They can be talking about history, they can be talking about prophecy, they can be talking about current events, and it isn't really clear. So the casting out of Satan is in one of those, meanwhile, back at the ranch. So we don't know if it was something that happened historically, or whether it's something that is yet to happen. Just don't know the answer to that, or at least I don't. Certainly you've got people who have theories about it, but just reading the text, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. So going back to your question, 
So, Yeshua is up in heaven. He's got angels and authorities and powers that are now being subjected to him. So, is he just letting Satan run wild while he's sitting up there? That was sort of your question. And my answer was, I don't know. Because if Satan has been bound, and for example, was cast down and bound either at the resurrection or at the flood, if that's the case, then all of the cussedness that's happening on earth, we're doing all by ourselves. Now, the thing that speaks against that is the book of Daniel. Because in the book of Daniel, which is clearly way after the flood, we have the specter of the angel Gabriel bringing a message to Daniel and saying that he was resisted by the prince of Persia and that the angel Michael had to help him get through so he could deliver his message to Daniel. That seems to indicate that those powers and principalities are still in business or were still in business at the time of Daniel. So short answer is I don't know. But I will again venture a guess. Yeshua is in heaven. Powers, principalities, and authorities are subjected to him. But the earth is Philistine territory. And Yeshua is on the other side of the Jordan to use the book of Joshua analogy. So in the book of Joshua, the nation Israel has been wandering in the wilderness. They finally come up on the east side of the Jordan River, conquer the Amorite kings, and now they're sitting there on that side of the river and they're staging for an invasion into the land proper. So in that model, which I think is a model for Revelation, what that means is Yeshua in heaven is staging for the invasion that he is going to launch at the seventh trumpet. But the earth itself is still under Philistine, which is to say satanic dominion. Yeah, do that whatever you want. It's not scripture. It is Johnnyology. It is not thus saith anybody but me. So believe it or not, like it or not, do whatever you want. And say it's not doctrine. But anyway, that's what I think is going on. And then once he comes back at the seventh trumpet, he's going to bind Satan and he will be cast into the pit. But then he will be released at the end of the thousand years for a short time where he will go out and corrupt the nations again. So, come back now to First Peter. So we've got a couple of things to unpack here. So we're down to verse 18. We read the 18 to the end of the chapter. So let's look at it again and unpack some of this. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, notice it says, for Christ also suffered. And in the previous paragraph, he's talking about suffering in the service of God. And certainly it is possible for us to suffer according to God's will, just as it was Christ's duty to suffer according to God's will. So when he says, for Christ also suffered, what he's talking about is he's referring back to that, 
for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So he's talking about suffering for good in the service of God and also Messiah suffered for good in the service of God. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, I will suggest that grammatical parallelism here says that if God puts you in a situation where you are suffering according to God's will, it is to bring somebody to God, to be a witness, in other words. So what Peter is talking about here in context is the suffering that you go through, which happens to be God's will, is to serve the same purpose as the suffering that Christ went through on a smaller scale. Christ got the whole world. You may be asked to suffer for one person's sake. So being put to death in the flesh, but being alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Yeshua Messiah, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. So the idea here of baptism, and we've talked about this lots of times, but I'll say it very briefly to get it on the tape. What happens with baptism is, as he says, the flood is a picture of baptism. Also, the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture of baptism. Both of those are scripture. This is not genealogy, this is scripture. And what happens is, in both of those two cases, the world is symbolically destroyed and those who come through are born again into a new creation. So the new creation, if you will, is the earth after the flood. In other words, the whole thing is wiped out with the exception of eight people and all the animals, and we have essentially a new creation. So in a sense, they're born again. And you have Noah and his family starting over as Adam and Eve started in the garden. So that's thing one. Thing two is you have the Exodus where Israel goes down through the water and the world, Egypt, follows them into the water. The world, Egypt, dies in the water and Israel comes up reborn as a nation. So you have come out of the world, go through death, quote unquote, and come up on the far side, a new creation or born again. So Peter is using the flood. Paul uses the Exodus. The whole thing is this idea of baptism. You go through the water, which is symbolic of going down into death, and you come up on the far side reborn. And that's something that Christians know and Jews know. Jews probably know it better than Christians do. But that's what's going on there. And by the way, one of the things that's interesting about this, remember we said Peter is talking to 
Hebrews. And he just sort of tosses this off, which is to say he doesn't feel like he needs to explain it very much. And in the same way, when Yeshua is talking to Nicodemus and talking about being born again, Nicodemus says something like, well, can I go back into my mother and take my piano? I mean, and Yeshua slaps him around. Yeah, Yeshua slaps him around. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? So this idea that I have just described of a mikvah or baptism was well known to Judaism. And John did a baptism in the Jordan for repentance from sin. And Yeshua did a baptism for salvation. But it's the same symbolic process. You leave the world of death, you go through the water, you die, because that's the only way out of the world of death is to die, and you come up on the other side, a new creation. Your comment was, what you're doing is you are leaving the realm of death and coming into the realm of life. You're right, it is a bigger deal in that you are leaving the kingdom of death and coming into the kingdom of God. Whereas, say for example, you happen to be an undertaker and you've been handling a dead body. You're in the realm of death. Death is all over you. If you touch somebody else, you transmit death, transmit mortality. So in order to get yourself cleaned up and get back into the realm of life, you take a mikvah and sprinkle yourself with the water of purification, you know, all that stuff. So in the case of joining the kingdom of God, you only have to do that once. But having done it, that doesn't mean that if you handle a dead body or any of those kinds of things, you don't have to do the normal transition, if, if you will. And the idea here is he takes it back to the flood. Paul takes it back to the Exodus. So a common theme that is well understood at the time of Christ. I mean, this is not something that Christians just invented, something that was well understood by Judaism in general. And as you say, the swapping from the world to Christ is a big deal. It absolutely is, but mechanically it's just a mikvah. It's a big deal, and it's a big deal in a Jewish community. A couple getting married will take mikvahs separately. Somebody getting ready to be ordained will take a mikvah. Lots of ultra-Orthodox community, they will take a mikvah going into Shabbat. It's, it's very common and good. There isn't anything in Christianity that superseded that so far as I know. Shama